Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, February 24th, 2021. I am John Pothortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Noah, the news is that the merch is flying off the shelves. It is. Thank you so much, people. We had such a fantastic response yesterday to the first day of the sales of our T-shirts and sweatshirt and tote bag at merch.commentarymagazine.com. I'm kind of overwhelmed, but keep it coming. We got we've requests got that. for coffee mugs in the future. Yeah, we've got coffee mug requests. I would we've like got... to see an image of Plato's Cave on a T-shirt at some point. Uh, yes, that's yes. We, well, that's the whole question: is is uh, the more successful this proves, the more phrases uh, that we can <laughs> and the drinking games we permission can do. We structure. solipsism, uh, permission structure. Uh, someone sent us a, a a fan sent us a little uh, illustration of three like voice bubbles saying "Hi John, Hi John, Hi John." <laughs> Somebody uh, wanted mailbox in your in your magazine. Oh, mailbox in your magazine. Although it's been a long time since I've said That's mailbox true. in your magazine, That's I true. have to say. Um, so maybe I should revive it in order to provide a marketing. Uh, you well, know, that's just pandering support. That is, it's a listen. I'm. I'll do anything. I will do anything for this nonprofit five hundred one c three institution that lives off the. Uh, generosity of its donors and the elamasonary support of so many of you and of course those who subscribe when you go to commentarymagazine.com get a few free reads and then we ask you to subscribe you know you got to do it if you're not doing it yet you should be doing it anyway thank you guys very much i will mention once again merch.commentarymagazine.com m-e-r-c-h merch.commentarymagazine.com we have a Keep the Candle Burning t-shirt. We have a Crushing Morosity t-shirt and sweatshirt, and we have a tote bag, and we have a Just a Commentary logo t-shirt that's really good because it's one of those Hanes t-shirt things that doesn't have a uh, like a, an annoying label in the back. And it's nice, and the commentary is kind of like, is kind of knit, kind of like, uh, it's, it's really cool. So it's very exciting. And... Um, I hope you will also be as excited as we are. We are not as excited to talk about all of the crushing morosity news that we have to talk about today because there's like there's like no good news. There, I mean, there is good news. The, we remain in a situation in which we should all be looking forward and optimistic about what is going on with the virus and the vaccine. As a person with comorbidities, I got my first shot yesterday. I got the Pfizer shot yesterday at Aqueduct Racetrack on the Queens-Long Island border. Very exciting. I've never been to Aqueduct Racetrack, um, though, and I've never been to any racetrack. John, do you Uh, get the shot actually out on where the track is? No. Well, here's the thing. The room where you get the shot is, I guess, the room where the windows are to buy the tickets, and then there is it's 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 indoors. But when you look out, uh, there's the track, and so I guess when it's when it's not winter, and when it's they open these windows, and so you're sort of in, it's like an inside outside area. But I've never been to a track before, though I have seen Guys and Dolls eight hundred and fifty thousand times, and so I was very uh, very excited 
to uh, be there. Uh, and uh, I got a little got a little pain on the uh, at the site because uh, it's a deltoid shot. It's not a not a vein shot, so it's up by the shoulder. Um, but um, it was a very pleasant, very easy, delightful experience. Extremely well set up, a New York State site. And uh, I was, you know, I was very determined to get this appointment. Got it. Uh, other people are not so fortunate. And the system is all screwed up here, as it is, I think, in a lot of places. But so I'm optimistic and everybody should be optimistic. The numbers are fantastic. There's even a debate now going on because um, as of now, because of the last five weeks or something like that, the majority of shots that are being administered in the United States in the vaccine are the second shot, are the second dosage, not, or people who have already been, have already gotten the shot, which of course raises this question about whether or not, should we be prioritizing the two shots three weeks apart, or should we simply be letting everybody come and get that shot because according to at least Pfizer's numbers, uh, the shot's effectiveness without the second shot is still extraordinarily high in the like 80s to 90%. But that is the, um, that's the, that's the story. And so I, that's very optimistic. However, what's going on with the Biden administration is not very optimistic, uh, should not make us very optimistic. And what is going on with, uh, you know, uh, with Iran is not should not be making us very optimistic, and uh, some of the other things that are going on should not make us that optimistic. So I'm trying to. Uh, so I was just trying to correct myself, and now I've uh, corrected myself out of uh, out of all all good sense. Yeah, um, <laughs> don't talk yourself out of a good time. But um, it, it, there is some concerning news on the horizon. You're saying now that we're we're the majority of doses are second dose, but only 44 million people have received the first dose. Right. So 20 million people have been fully immunized and the daily rolling average of vaccines is beginning to decline precipitously over the, and it's been sustained now for since about February 14. Um, Yeah. We're just simply running out of supply. Um, Well, no, because apparently the supply, well, two things happened, right? One is that the storm disrupted everything last week. And so the the average uh, daily number like like declined precipitously. And because of the storm, apparently supply is now way back up. And all the Johnson & Johnson news is good, right? The Johnson & Johnson vaccine is as effective with one dose as Pfizer and Moderna are with two. Well, even Pfizer says that their first dose is, is roughly as effective as the second dose. It's all just about longevity right. of the immunization. Um, the supply issue has presented some challenges, I think, for local governance. We're, we're in the Northeast, so we're focused on the Northeast. And um, New Jersey and New York, where I am and where you guys are, have their own uh, troubles. Christine, I don't know what Washington, D.C. is, but Connecticut has been a, a regional leader. And it's doing something rather novel. It's switching over to an egalitarian model of eligibility based entirely by age. So in a place where I'm at, you have groups A1, A2, A3, B1, B2, B3. I don't know why we didn't just go with A, B, C, D, um, but it's all based on your status and your eligibility. And none of it is actually monitored very well. 
Um, you go in there and you're asked a series of CDC mandated questions and you answer those questions to the best of your ability and nobody fact checks you. So if you get an appointment, you can get a, a vaccine, um, which is probably how it should be because the objective is to get to herd immunity as fast as possible. It doesn't matter whose arm it goes into. That's one less arm you have to inoculate. Um, in fact, and Connecticut is, is essentially moving to that posture. Florida has been doing that, right? As I has understand, they? Florida Florida does it by age. Israel did it by age. Um, it was this notion that we had to prioritize. This all started with the notion that we had to prioritize healthcare workers. Uh, that healthcare workers need to get it first, so that they would be reassured uh, and and uh, do their jobs at hospitals, at nursing homes, and with people uh, without real, you know, fear of of infection. And so that was the original notion: was in an emergency, they have to get it first. And then we started getting into the, well, who else should get it first? If we're establishing the principle that some people should get it first, then of course we get to. The, our great bugbear, which is the teachers. Let's let's let teachers have it early uh, in order to facilitate the reopening of schools in places where schools are closed. And now, of course, we have all this anecdotal uh, information that despite the fact that teachers have been moved to the front of the line, their unions are still demanding that schools be closed. And of course, for reasons that go beyond the existence of COVID-19, like mold in buildings and, you know, uh, bad ventilation systems in general, uh, which just gives the lie to the notion that they want to stay, that, they, that they're staying home uh, because they're fearful of getting COVID. They're just staying home because they want to stay home. And there's a third principle at work, and certainly in my city, it's been thrown into high relief and has led to, unfortunately, a really awful uh, uh, system where people who want to get the vaccine just wait weeks and weeks and can't get an appointment. And that's the equity stuff. We literally have public health workers banging on the doors in certain neighborhoods, begging people to get vaccinated and, and being refused, where people in other wards who literally would get up at the crack of dawn and stand in line anywhere in the city to get a shot in their arm can't get an appointment, even though they are over 65. So now we've just moved in. We also have the 1A, B, C, D, E, F, G tiers. We're in a tier where people who are under 65 but have pre-existing conditions are supposed to be able to get the vaccine. And we are having all these same problems. There's like, well, you know, what is what is your BMI? How do you prove what your BMI is? They've fiddled around. It was set at 25. If you have a BMI of 25 or over, you can get the shot. Now it's at 30. It's just all made up. Like there, there really is no true public health messaging going on here. And that's why I think age becomes something that even, even in the face of frontline workers uh, having priority age is simple. It's like, if you're this age, you get the shot. Then the next week, if you're this age, you get the shot. Right. So, what I've never, so what I don't understand is why it couldn't have been both. And eventually it was both in a lot of places, which is that they created this, you know, front of the line healthcare worker thing. Why couldn't it have been front of the line healthcare workers and people over 75? And then frontline workers and people over the age of 65. Think that of it like a little bit places, like, yeah. <clears throat> like um, an airport where they say that, you know, uh, people with small children can board first and people in first class can board first. And that line, that first class, that, that line remains open for people to enter to sort of bypass the longer line as they let the other groups in, but they let the other groups in. And that that was always the missing element and where we start getting into the question of the hunger of public health officials 
to and 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 government officials, whatever, to socially engineer whatever they can, whenever they can, right? Because the whole idea of this egalitarian system that Noah's talking about is that it is not gameable. You're either 65 or you're not 65. You take out your driver's license and you show it and you're in. And if you're 64, come back next week. It's not complicated. All of this stuff is complicated to the extent that, as I said, I have a comorbidity. I have an app from my, you know, from the from the uh, hospital system that I'm part of. Uh, <laughs> I went through a whole process to establish that there was an area in the app that I could show when I showed up to get my appointment that said, I have this condition. I showed up, I sat down at a desk. I I gave the guy my form. I was in the system with an appointment. He said, what do you have? I told him. And then I said, do you want to see, you know, the proof from my hospital? And he's like, no, it's okay. (laughs) <laughs> um, no, it shouldn't and it should be and it should be because it doesn't matter who gets right. it so everybody in the audience it matters i'm sorry it matters with people over 75 because they are so clearly at a wildly enhanced risk of getting it right so that that mattered but checking that someone's over 75 is no big deal uh, particularly since you can do a lot of it visually anyway uh, but they cannot help themselves. It's that, um, you know, it's like, uh, why shouldn't I pick? Uh, why shouldn't I, Andrew Cuomo, pick who gets to get the vaccine and who doesn't? That's the fun of being in government. Why shouldn't restaurants open at 25% capacity as opposed to 33% capacity? I get to pick. Yeah, but there's a real credibility risk uh, here. I mean, we talked yesterday about the extent to which public health officials and people with the CDC are making absurd recommendations. And some folks uh, on the center left are actually making a pretty compelling argument that this is what they always do, that they always make recommendations that are excessive and you know founded on uh, data, but data that's fluid. And like 10 years later, it'll change. Like you, this year, it's not okay to eat eggs. And next year, you have to eat eggs or you're going to get cancer. Um, and they make this make these recommendations pretty often. And what happens is you substitute your good judgment. You understand what's happening and you either adhere to those recommendations or you do not based on your own uh, individual risk assessment. That's a pretty conservative idea. Uh, it's one I like and one I adhere to. And I think probably we'll get back there to a certain extent. But the obstacle, uh, as everybody knows, to resumption of, of real life uh, for the vast majority of people with children are public school teachers. And Christine identified something. I want to go into this. I want Christine to talk about this briefly. But um, Tim Carney over at the Washington Examiner uh, went to a protest, a teacher-led protest against reopening schools. And as one pretty revealing quote, you will not sacrifice our lives, disrupt our communities, and endanger our students. For what? Test scores? Or a few folks who want to get their free babysitters back? Keep the schools shut. I'm not using the word babysitters. They are. And this is the second time that we've encountered an individual in an unguarded moment in the educational establishment describing their vocation as babysitting. I'm not saying that. You're saying that. Yeah, that yeah, was the was... school board in California, right? right. Where they all, they all had they all had to they all had to resign because they got caught on Zoom saying, you know, F U B. Right. What's well, it, they... you know, all you want to do is smoke pot and make me your babysitter. 
Well, the the protest that the protest that Tim Carney wrote about was in I believe in Montgomery County in Maryland, which is like I think right now 50th in terms of reopening schools, which is odd because actually Hogan is, you know, a Republican governor and, but he's been fighting these unions. And he's also fighting, one of the things that's frustrating is that we're seeing now a lot of appeal to the public, the the opinion of parents about whether or not they want reopening and and a lot of unions and a lot of uh, individual schools, I know, because I've taken two of these for my kids' schools, are sending out surveys to parents asking do you want to return to school? But the surveys themselves, the ones I took, were heavily weighted to keeping it either closed or hybrid. They didn't give you the option of even selecting for five days a week totally open. Um, so, so you're seeing a lot of appeals now, a kind of way of framing it that's putting the onus back on parents and saying, actually, most parents don't want to come back. We're just protecting the parents' interests here. Which is not true. The data does right. not support exactly. that conclusion. Um, it does support it if you just survey the general population, right. which is not the, the metric you should be using. But uh, among this cohort, the teachers, for the most part, educational establishmentarians, their, their demand is kind of rational. We want to be vaccinated first, too. Um, and that's not something you can object to really without, you know, diving deep into the data to demonstrate why it's not uh, true. But now we're getting more and more evidence that this is a fig leaf, a canard, that they don't actually want vaccination first. They're just, this is just another goalpost that will be shifted in the, when, when the conditions dictate it. Christine, you had, you found some evidence to that effect today from the good folks at Axios. Yes, there's an article now that bringing back this question of how dangerous uh, COVID is to children who contract it, even if they're asymptomatic. And there's this extremely rare, let me just say that phrase again, extremely rare syndrome that that some children have developed um, that leads to, in some cases, hospitalization. We've We've even had a handful of deaths. So Axios shows this graph, which shows the regular COVID rates, and and then it shows this flat line. The flat line are the pediatric cases, but the headline for the piece was all about the dangerous surge. And I'm looking, I'm looking at the flat line, I'm seeing no surge. And and the flat line is far below the other. Yes. Oh, acres below. So there are adults, right, there's the adult chart, which is sort of like in the middle of the XY, you know, the chart with an XY axis. And then the pediatric chart is down the the, the zero baseline, right, mm-hmm. along the bottom. And it's a flat line. <laughs> and it is a flat line, a teeny bit up from zero. And they One, never I give think you it's the numbers. 1.2, right? And they only give you the percentage. They're like, this, is, this syndrome has doubled in the last month or something like that. But they don't give you the starting. Like, double can be from one case to two. It can be from 50 cases to 100. They, there's a reason they're not giving you the raw numbers here because it doesn't suit the narrative. And the narrative right. continues to be alarmism, fear, right. let's all stay hunkered down. Right. Well, this is the interesting thing about using your own best judgment because it fly, it, 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 the rubber meets the road in two places. Is your bias <clears throat> toward letting people use their own best judgment about how to live their lives or is it not? Because that's what I'm talking about here when I say Andrew Cuomo wants to say who gets the vaccine and who doesn't. Now, you can say philosophically that's because he believes in expertise or uh, however you want to slice it. But the simple fact of the matter is that he, it, it, in his worldview, that is what government is for. It is the distribution of resources in a manner that is that he deems or or is deemed by the body politic to be fair, equitable, reasonable, however you want to slice it. And then there's the idea that that is not what government is for administering the tasks of government and leaving people alone for the most part to govern themselves. And this is the difference between the red and blue state models. And this is, you know, it's where, where 
and on any given question, do you immediately say, here is X thing. What is government going to do about it? Or what are you going to do about it? And so um, what's happened in the last year is the empowerment almost to a degree un- unseen, certainly I think unseen in our lifetimes, with the exception of a couple of months after 9-11, of the empowerment of the idea that government needs to intervene in people's lives to keep them safe by saying where they can go, telling them what they can do on a daily basis, saying whether or not their kids can go to playgrounds. And now, of course, the big issue, which is schools, and now the distribution and dissemination of the vaccine. And it's also predicated on an assumption that you're an idiot, that people are stupid. I don't think so at all. I don't think it's that. Well, it's predicated on the assumption that people will make decisions that are in their personal interest, but not necessarily in the common interest. Right, Abe, I'm sorry you were... No, but it's just also, and you see, I mean, because the thing about a crisis or or an emergency is that it brings all those, as Noah was describing before, you know, like there, there, there's always in, in non-crisis times, there are these government recommendations and they always success, successively contradict each other, you know, um, uh, eggs are good, no eggs are bad, they'll kill you. Um, and and whatever else, and that we've seen. We now we now that the recommendations are made flesh because of the emergency, we see the shifts actually being instituted in real time, and it's crazy making. Right, and so I think the central question we have now, aside from how we're going to get back to normal, is how is this. Uh, assumption of of radical authority on the part of centralized government figures at the state level, even never n- never really got to this point at the national level, but could how is it going to be pulled back? Because once you get a taste of that ambrosia, you know and you're suddenly a god and you get to drink ambrosia, and the ambrosia is telling people what to do for their own good. Unless you think that's wrong. The way we think that's wrong. I don't know how you. It's going to be. You know, we see in New York State this 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 movement to retract Andrew Cuomo's emergency powers because of what happened with the nursing homes, which is exactly the right measure to take. Um, we still don't know if it's going to happen, but what about elsewhere? I mean, elsewhere we have this effort to recall Gavin Newsom, right? Um, Georgia. There's a similar effort underway in Georgia legislatively, and Georgia's Republican governor is objecting to it. Right. Um, it's not ideological in, right. in, in that sense. Right. So anyway, I, I just think that's a, it, it's an interesting where it a it's a it's a telling moment because um, uh, the odd thing about Donald Trump, the fascist monster who wanted to control and you know ruin democracy and everything, is precisely that he did not want to assert emergency national powers. Well, that I don't was want to the objection to Trump. He so didn't I, I don't put on a national mask mandate. So he didn't put down a national stay-at-home order. Whatever it was like, you know, the 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 discontinuity between the rhetoric about how what was going on last year and the reality, which was that Trump was irresponsible, and I think he was irresponsible, because he was so resistant to asserting na- a, a, sort of a national 
crisis and the need to manage it nationally? Well, but as long as it's dependent on on observed conditions and an empirical uh, assessment of the prevailing conditions and the and the state of the virus. And I, like I said, I don't want to harp on schools too much, but it's really indicative of a, a sort of mindset that's on display here. The the issue that I watch very closely isn't how many days you're open once, twice, three times per week, shifting, you know, on weeks, off weeks, what have you. It is closing at 1 p.m. as opposed to 3 because the logic there has been shifting. It started with there's a, you know there's a, this big workload that we have to do now, and then it was oh well kids can't eat lunch in schools because they have to take off their masks, and that's not dependent on exogenous conditions. That is simply superstition and paranoia, and it needs to be throttled out of the people who adhere to it. But you can't throttle them because they, that's the they're, only way it's going to go away. Yeah, but they're stronger. Yeah, but they're but they can throttle us. They are. I know. That's well, my point. Yeah, You're saying we should throttle them, back. but they're throttling us. Right. Well, that's that's where where it it truly becomes a challenge because if you if you live by the principle that you should you should uh, be personally responsible for yourself and self govern, and you have a kind of conservative mindset in opposition to the to the kind of technocratic uh, elite mindset we've been talking about, you you cannot live the, your life by your own values when the schools shut down and say it's unsafe because there's no, unless you can afford to send either you have the time to, to homeschool your kids or you can afford to send them to private school, which a lot of people don't have either of those options, you're stuck and your avenues for protests are limited. So I actually, I, I'll be curious to see because a lot of the parents I talk to, and I talk to quite a lot of parents from all over the political spectrum and, and Noah's right that these, in these, issues are actually becoming bipartisan in an interesting way. A lot of the parents I uh, have talked to are resigned to the fact that their kids will not get back in school this year in places like here in DC where they haven't been in school for a year already, but they want to know what the plan is for next year before the summer begins. They want a commitment from these teachers and these school administrators and from the mayor uh, that this is going to happen in the fall and what it will look like in the fall. Will it be one day a week or not? Because a lot of people are going to leave the school sim- system more than have already fled if they don't know what the plan is. There is not a person in the United States with school-age children who does not have the deep personal experience that the circumstances under which we are living, they are studying, and they are uh, they are uh, going through their lives, is not disastrous. Are they resilient? Yes. Can they recover from this? Yes. Can their educations recover from it? Yes. But if what is going on is largely unnecessary, then this is just like breaking somebody's leg and saying, "Yeah, it'll heal." Okay, it'll heal. You know, it'll heal. They'll be fine eventually. Just you know, make sure they sit still for two months and don't move and let the let the. But it's worse. It's re-breaking the leg every six months. It's not right. just like we'll let then, it heal. It's like we're just going to keep breaking it, and you can't complain right. about the break. And then demanding <laughs> sympathy for the leg breaker. Right. Right. His arm. He suffers so much. Stressed from all the leg breaking. Right. Now I, I want to just. Our metaphors always go off. The rails I just want to point. Out. So Abe, Abe of the of the four of us, Abe doesn't have kids. So let me just ask: since all we ever do is talk about schools, and uh, you know, uh, can you point out sort of uh, what are the other? I mean, I think sort of like restaurant openings are have this weird similar quality, which is so why is it twenty five percent capacity? 
is it 25% capacity because you know it'll be 50? So you say 25 because it'll be 50? Or is it, ha I'm going to just make up a number. And the imposition of the number being almost arbitrary is the point. That's the fun. Well, you know, I have there to... is no science. It's just I am the law. Twenty five percent. It's it's where they can tinker, they will tinker. Um, but no, there is no um, there's no leg breaking uh, um, metaphor that applies in my case and say restaurants. But I would say, in the case of restaurant owners, it's worse than that because the leg will not get better. It is it is um, uh, w- 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 you are risking losing the leg. Um, and sorry, or not that sorry. Um, right. So that did is almost say that very explicitly. What's that about restaurants? What did he say? Something to the effect of <clears throat> presented uh, several months ago, presented with this graph of where transmission was occurring in restaurants. Oh, absolutely. You said you said was we, we, minimal. We, we, it, it it makes up a very small percentage of the spread, but it's it's something we can control. Right, it's just so it's gangrenous versus a leg break. It's like he's allowing yep. the gangrene to set in and just let it. Yeah, right. No, that's a right. So the leg has to be amputated, yep. and that's you know. Um, I mean, the one thing that makes this tricky, of course, is the the nature of the contagion, and it makes it tricky because, of course, this notion it's like, well, you do what's best for you. You know, you make a reasoned decision for yourself. But of course, it's not that simple because this is a, a contagion that can affect everybody. So, for example, what are we going to do if 45% of the population refuses the vaccine? I mean, I don't know what we do. I don't think you can't, I guess you can't make it mandatory that everybody in the United States get the vaccine. You can make it mandatory that everybody under the age of 18 get the vaccine, which will which can substitute for that and create a new form of herd immunity once that happens, if that happens, by getting the numbers up to 70% through the, through the population of people who are minors. We're not there yet, but I mean, that, that's where the problem goes. And then you get this weird version of it, like Cuomo does say, okay, movie theaters can open, but only at 25% capacity. And then as I think I mentioned yesterday, like, you know, uh, uh, you know, sort of movie Twitter is like, they shouldn't open the movie theaters. Don't open the movie. I'm not ready to go back to a movie theater. And it's like, well, the hell with you. Like, who the hell are you? But you see, they it's not quite there because should movie theaters prove to be super spreaders, then the person who doesn't go is, is, a, is as much at risk as the person who does. And therefore, you can't open them. That is that was where that was the seduction. That reason is the reason that Andrew Cuomo can still be Andrew Cuomo a year after this. This is the argument for the tiered, stratified Gattaca society that I'm so irrationally terrified of. And there's a very serious argument in favor of it. It's an argument that's being pursued in policy in places like Israel, which is that if you have a a population as large as 45 million people who won't get this vaccine, there's a very real possibility the virus will continue to transmit within this population, mutate and evolve beyond the point at which the protections exist in this messenger protein or the Johnson Johnson vaccine. So we'll just be back to square one. And the answer to that is to create a passport system where the regular life, these private institutions administer or or rather uh, observe the people who can prove their vaccination and offer services to them and don't 
to people who do not, which is a very powerful inducement to get vaccinated. And I find that to be rather chilling on one level, but at another level, as a public policy matter, it's not a horrible idea. I'm I'm very torn over it. It's but it's a it's a yeah. Aren't I mean this is you know this is like you know I'm going into the kind of amateur um, stuff you know science that we sh- that we should never uh, mess around with. But isn't it likely that uh, the subset of the American population that wouldn't get the vaccine will also generally be more risky and social and whatever and 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 actually rush to to herd immunity. Anyway, that's, a, that's it's, another it's, problem. I mean, they'll rush to her to be because they'll get, yeah, they'll get it. Yeah. They'll and it's get actually, it and then they'll have the antibodies from it, getting it. Yes. It's pretty hysterical, actually. If, if we had professional humorists who are capable of seeing things that are funny anymore, they would be lampooning this because it's, it's hysterical. There will be in the very near future, there's going to be two sets of populations in this country. One percent, one set of populations who's out there enjoying life as much as they possibly can. And which is ongoing, even as we speak, and another population that's terrified and is waiting for public health officials to give them the opportunity to go back and enjoy private life. And those two populations are going to be distinct, distinguished by their willingness to get vaccinated. And the population that is not vaccinated is the one that's going to be enjoying life. The well, people who are vaccinated are going to be sitting at home. So they're playing the long shadows. game. So they're playing the long game is what you're saying. <laughs> I mean, I think the weirdness is you have these two weird populations you're talking about two weird populations. You have the population of anti-vaxxers who believe that, you know, who believe on the basis of, largely on the basis of a manufactured false retracted study about autism and vaccines that was the one of the great science scandals of uh, the last hundred years, believe that vaccines cause disease. Right, so then you have this population. It's been it's twenty years since the publication of the Andrew Wakefield uh, vaccines cause autism study. I think it's twenty. I think it was ninety eight. So it's like tw- almost twenty five years, and um, the consequences of it remain, and they're growing. They're not retract. You know, they're retracted, and everybody knows. And your doctor says this and that. And it doesn't matter. People have made up their minds that. I don't know, with kids, maybe we should spread it out. Maybe we should, you know, they shouldn't get all the vaccines of babies, shouldn't get all the vaccines at once. I want to spread it out. Why? Because I just want that. And I'm their mother. I'm the father. Like, I know better what's better for my kids, right? That kind of thing. And it's like, that's reasonable. I want them to get it. But I just want them to get it over the course of a year, even though where did they get that idea? From some message board. You know, from some anti-vax message board, from Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I don't know where they got it, right? So there's that population. And then you have the population that believes it's all a hoax. And and uh, everything's a hoax and there is no coronavirus. It's a pandemic. It's all to control us. And I just will go out and enjoy life. So there you have this kind of mirror image of what you're talking about, which is the people who aren't going to get vaccinated because it's a hoax. And then the people who think that vaccines are the most dangerous things on earth and will kill you and therefore they won't get vaccinated. But there's also kind of a middle, middle group of people too. And those are the people who uh, are not skeptical of vaccination, but are like, I'm going to take a wait and see approach. Maybe they're not high risk. Maybe they're not, you know, in the elderly population. They just think "Eh, I'll get it when I get it. But until I get it or, 
we should still be allowed to start returning to normal. And it's that group that I think has been most negatively affected by the poor, poor messaging on the part of first at the Trump administration and now definitely with the Biden administration and, you know, the Anthony Fauci messaging uh, of late, which is that even if you get the vaccine, you can't go back to normal. Those people hear that and think, well, you know, I wasn't rushing to get it in the first place. It's probably going to be fine if I don't. I just want to get back to normal. So why bother if I'm not going to be able to get back to normal with the vaccine? That that There's a vast middle there of people who, who believe in vaccination for their children, who aren't anti-vaxxers, who don't think there's a pandemic, but are kind of like, eh, I don't know. Right. That messaging is really harmful to that group of people. I will say one weird thing, and then I, we got to we gotta uh, do, do a spot, but um, uh, that everybody in America isn't, isn't like screaming that they need the vaccine right now is kind of weirdly helpful because there isn't enough vaccine and there aren't enough appointments and there isn't enough supply. Um, so the fact that there are, that there are sort of pockets of resistance at this moment uh, sort of helps the administration of the, the, the vaccine because you don't have like people literally like standing outside vaccination sites with torches and banging on the door demanding to get in, which Virtually, a lot of people were doing in the first three or four weeks of this because it was so maddening to try to get an appointment, right? And so now, for example, here where there are no appointments, maybe it's not so terrible that not everybody is rushing to get an appointment. The question is what happens in April, right? But that's a that's just a weird uh, side note. Uh, what isn't a weird side note, but is wonderfully surprising, as I've been telling you, is that Stop thinking gum is bad. Gum is good. If you use sugar-free gum and you chew it for 20 minutes after meals, you're going to help your oral and dental health. It's fantastic. And Quip is really helping the, the, the electric toothbrush company that has disrupted and changed the way Americans brush, floss, and deal with their teeth. Because you know, uh, gum is something people chew as a way to relieve stress, curb appetites, and most importantly, freshen breath. But it can be an integral part of a of a healthy oral care routine, right? They they if chewed for twenty minutes after eating, sugar free, Quip gum has tooth friendly xylitol with zero calories, and to satisfy your taste buds, Quip added a long lasting mint flavor, crunchy tri layer design, and stamped it all with the classic Quip. Tongue, remember, it was only a few short years ago that Quip reinvented the toothbrush, so they've done it again this time for chewing gum with the gum that's actually good for your oral health and comes with a dispenser that will remind you of the one-click candy you loved as a kid with a slim, travel-ready dispenser available in five colors, metal or plastic, that packs and protects up to 10 gum pieces at a time and fits in just about any purse or pocket for on-the-go. Add a gum refill plan for a gift that keeps on giving all year round. Quip's customizable subscription lets you chew and share at your own pace and not worry about running out. Plus, the more you buy, the more you save with bulk discounts on extra gum packs. It's not a substitute for brushing and flossing, but this is great support for your oral health, particularly when you pair it with a Quip electric toothbrush for adults and kids and that refillable floss and other great products. In addition to gum packs, Quip also delivers fresh brush head, floss, and toothpaste refills every three months from $5.00. Shipping is free, so you can save money and skip the misery of in-store shopping. Spread good oral health habits this season and join the over 5 million mouths already using Quip. Get chewing 
for less than $2 per gum pack. And if you go to getquip.com slash commentary right now, you can get a free plastic dispenser with any refill plan. That's a free dispenser at getquip.com slash commentary, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash commentary. Quip, the good habits company. Uh, Noah, uh, how about the fact that... uh, Amazingly enough, there are still undocumented immigrants, illegal immigrants coming across the border, and the Biden administration has to figure out what to do with them, just like the Obama administration did, and just like the Trump administration did. Yeah, and um, Joe Biden's getting a lot of heat from his left flank um, for putting kids in cages. Now they're not cages, they're uh, containers. Shelters. Um, Shelter, I'm sorry, shelters that look suspiciously like shipping containers. We'll just call them shelters for the for the sake of argument. Um, and what the Biden administration is doing is comporting with the Flores settlement. And we talked a lot about this three years ago. I can't be the only person who remembers this. Um, that's a legal determination made in the 1990s that um, prescribes how you handle children who come across the border with families, without families, unaccompanied minors, Um involves transferring over to from DHS to the Health and Human Services Department. Sometimes they can be kept, you know, in 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 these containers or rather they're, they're whatever they're we're calling it ahead of processing. And then they're transferred over to families sometimes. And sometimes those families are illegal immigrants and they don't respond to calls. And that's how you lose them. I mean, we had this whole conversation. It was a big deal. The Trump administration got wrapped over the knuckles deservedly for trying to use um, separation, child separation as a deterrent. But it was existing policy. It was policy for a reason because of this settlement. Now, it can be changed legislatively. Congress can go to work and figure out some sort of a stopgap that keeps families together, which is the Flores Settlements uh, maintains, um, while also improving their conditions. But Congress doesn't want to legislate. They, they, we've been aware of this for quite some time. So you have people like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, who's pounding the table over how the Biden administration is immorally um, mirroring the the Trump administration here. But she could offer an amendment anytime. She could offer some sort of a legislative uh, stopgap that would that would fix what the Biden administration has to do here. And Democrats could and probably should. Um, but they're disinclined to pursue that because the remedies for this condition are not so clear cut. Well, she she in particular is is very annoying because she has, she's built her reputation in the kind of flattering Netflix documentary bringing down the house or whatever it was called that she featured in um, had a whole section of this where she was choosing campaign posters and one of them was like said abolish ice so her, she's always on Twitter and and from the time she started campaigning she's about abolish ice abolish ice and you know there's this moment where she looks at the poster and goes oh that looks so gangster like this is part of her brand management is to abolish ice and she said in her you know. Twitter uh, stream of consciousness thing last night, you know, ice gotta go. Like she's, you know, this is her gangster persona. Has she, but she's not introducing legislation to abolish ice. She's posturing. And just like she postured during the Trump administration when she flew down to the border in all white and wept at a, you know, a, a, at a chain link fence, you know, the, the Biden administration just reactivated one of those border facilities in Carrizo Springs, Texas, that had been used by the Trump administration to house, I think, particularly teenagers who come across the border. It would help everyone if there was some thoughtful uh, 
explanation um, by some of these administration officials as to why they do things the way they do, not just the settlement, which I think was really helpful that Noah uh, reminded us of, but also how difficult it is and how dangerous it is for these children who come across the border, particularly unaccompanied, to just release them into the country. This is not a good idea. Some of them are actually brought here for nefarious purposes. Some of them are brought here hoping to find family members, but with no means to find them. So there's a reason we have a process. And just the political posturing um, that Trump did was harmful, but so is what the progressive left is doing now. We cannot have a country without borders. Borders exist. And if you compare our border management to what a lot of countries in, in, in Europe do, for example, we're downright you know open borders compared to them. So I think it would be helpful for people to have a better perspective about why these procedures are in place if we're even going to talk about changing them. This is one of those um, situations where there really are um, uh, bad and worse answers. Um, and that's and unsurprisingly, the Trump administration did a horrible job in articulating what the nature of the problem is here, um, which is, among other things, that you cannot put children in prisons, uh, essentially, uh, uh, where, where adults are. Um, and uh, the Obama administration faced all sorts of problems along the same line. I mean, as, as a matter of deterrence, uh, Barack Obama, when he was president, did make a speech saying, do not come here with your kids. We lose track of them. We lose, we lose track of thousands of them every year. Um, and this was kind of considered a, a, a sort of like um, humane warning, you know, in, in some sense. Right. And Jeff Sessions said the same thing in a much more negative fashion. But it was the same thing. Don't bring them here. You're not going to like what happens when they come. Right. That 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 was the that that was the other way of that was the other way of putting it. But the two are essentially the same. Uh, message. Can, like I just, one had, yeah, go ahead. can I just add that part of the, I mean, the messaging uh, from a popular culture perspective, the only message you hear about people bringing their children over the border is this kind of, you know, inspiring, you know, courageous tale of people, you know, doing everything they can to get to this country, which is, which isn't untrue. Like, I think it is actually an act of bravery and courage for people to try to get here. Um, and to and to risk their lives and their children's lives in the process. But I think there's a weird sort of there's like the Hollywood version of of, you know, how we should reward anyone who comes to this country that way. And that's actually the version that the progressive left acts on when they talk about this problem. And then, as Abe said, there's this reality, which is not at all a Hollywood happy ending for a lot of these people. They die in the desert. They drown. It's it's horrific. I mean, I think the bad and worse option problem, like the the, the incentive structure of being uh, America uh, with uh, a subcontinent on our border that is not working. You know, I mean, what are there, seven or eight nations in Central America? Um, Only a couple of them are sort of uh, functioning like places where you can grow up and have a stable life and raise your kids and all of that. Um, and so you're, you're, you're in a situation in which um, there is, including building a wall, whatever, there is the, the incentive for people to come here involves us existing and them existing. And, I, you know, there is no answer to that problem except managing it 
And because we look at Trump and you say Trump did a horrible job of, you know, messaging or sort of explaining what was going on. But of course, he doesn't think so. And they don't think so because they were sending a message to their the people who already agree with them about how this is all horrible and and legal and illegal immigration alike are horrible and they're destructive and we don't have a country because of this. And so their people heard it loud and clear and were fine with it until he got wind of the fact that they were doing better with Hispanics uh, in the run-up to 2020 than he expected to. And then he started soft-peddling the anti-immigration message uh, in, 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 in the run-up to the election. But there is no good answer here. Well, there, but there are things you can say from a policy perspective. As a, If you're a Republican who wants to encourage legal immigration, which is something every thoughtful person in this country should encourage, because we all were immigrants at some point in our past, is is you need, there, there are actually uh, uh, clear things you can do. One of the things we saw during the last border crisis was that we didn't have enough judges and administrators facilitating and processing these claims. So people come over, they're undocumented, they want to stay, they want to work. They actually, the ones who come here wanting to become Americans, it's very difficult for them to even do that. So there's the processing of how they got over here. There's getting them in the system. There's all this stuff. We did not have enough judges literally uh, to process asylum claims, to, to, to assess each person as they came through. You could throw money at that problem and create a, an administrative mechanism that would allow for better processing, which would also then hopefully help keep families together or at least expedite that process. So there are definitely boring, practical, administrative, you know, good government things you could do here, but nobody wants to talk about that. They want to talk about closing the border if, if to appeal to a certain part of their base or abolishing ICE to appeal to their part of the base. And it's, it's right. a useless conversation. Yeah, you're talking about mitigation strategies, management strategies that accept the reality of the circumstances that we are living in. And that is not where the conversation is, right? The conversation on the right is they must be stopped uh, and you you say everybody in this country, you know, thoughtful person believes in legal immigration. That is not true. Stephen Miller does not believe in legal immigration. The that, Trump administration yeah. tried to draw down legal immigration numbers to almost nothing at a time when we were at full employment. Like even the argument that the that legal immigration was bad because it held down wages or something like that made absolutely no sense in the context of 2019. And yet there they were doing this because they hate immigration. Yes, that's true. They're they don't just hate illegal immigration. Um, and so, uh, you know, so there's the hatred on that side. And then the ha- on the other side, it's let them all in, uh, total amnesty, total social support, right? Xavier Becerra, Javier Becerra, up for HSS secretary, as you said yesterday, wants to provide health, free health care, Medicaid, essentially, to illegals. And uh, blanket amnesty and 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 free healthcare. So the United States then becomes a giant social service agency for people who are coming across the border. You know how we come to any even remote consensus on on any of this, but that's why these things like the idea of a giant immigration reform bill or something like that is insane. There will be no giant bill. On it, we have no national consensus on this, but you can manage it better because you can manage anything better than the way we've been managing it thus far. 
And the other thing you can manage better is your uh, online shopping because we're all doing it. And, you know, we've all seen that promo code field taunt us at checkout. So let me talk to you about Honey, the browser extension that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one it finds to your cart. No more manually searching for coupon codes. That's a thing of the past. Honey supports over 30,000 stores online from tech, gaming, popular fashion brands, even food delivery. So here's how it works. Imagine you're shopping on one of your favorite sites. When you check out, the Honey button drops down. All you have to do is click Apply Coupons. Wait a few seconds as Honey searches for coupons it can find for that site. If it finds one, you'll watch the prices drop. So Honey has found over 17 million members, over $2 billion in savings, If you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free and installs in a few seconds. I installed it yesterday, and it takes a few seconds. It's unbelievable. Nice and simple. It's there, ready for me when I want to end up at checkout, and I click on the Honey dropdown. So by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this podcast. So get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash commentary. That's joinhoney.com slash commentary commentary um so uh abe you were pointing out that there's a a story in the new york times following along uh this uh, propaganda effort over the last month another credulous shockingly biased shockingly uh delusional story um in the new york times by david kingsley about how uh israel isn't vaccinating the palestinians but is sending vaccine to allies far away Allies at Honduras and a couple where they've sent 5,000 doses or something like that. But what about the Palestinians? It's not vaccinating the Palestinians. Now, let us discuss this for just, I'm going to say two things and I'm going to stop. Number one, half of the population of Israel has now been vaccinated or maybe more than half. 20% of the population of Israel is Arab. Okay. They are included in that number. So they are not Palestinian precisely because they do not live under the under the authority of the Palestinians they don't live on the west bank they don't live in gaza but they are palestinian arab and they are being inoculated at exactly the same rate as everybody else in the country that's point number 1 point number 2 is under international law and the framework of international agreements that are still abiding the oslo accords and others israel is legally and morally not responsible for the health care of the Palestinians who live under the aegis of the Palestinian Authority or Hamas in Gaza. They are not responsible. That, that, that is a sitting government with its own governance rules, and it could have gone to Moderna, and it could have gone to Pfizer and bought vaccine for its people. And you know why they didn't? Because they stink because they, they're awful and terrible and they're a death cult and they don't care who lives or dies. And it is not Israel's responsibility to keep the Palestinians alive when their own government looks to look, you know, doesn't care whether they live or die. That said, not only that, but, uh, and this is the final thing, imagine a system where Israeli doctors fan out across the West Bank with needles in their hands set up tables and say, come here, let us vaccinate you. This is a polity that has been told for 30 years that Israel puts poison in the water, poisons their wells, gave Yasser Arafat AIDS, 
This is what is said about Israel in the Palestine. You think anybody, you think those people are going to go and like want Israeli doctors to inoculate them? When we've been talking for months about how merely the whisper of the thought of the Tuskegee, uh, not that the, you know, the experiments at at the Tuskegee Institute and others, that this is what is causing a hesitancy among African-Americans to get vaccinated. You want to multiply that by 250,000%? That's the Palestinian attitude toward Israel and Israeli doctors. So uh, the thing about the Times article is it mentions none of what you just said regarding the international um, situation and and the Palestinian leadership. That was entirely ignored, all of that. Um, as for the central premise of the of the uh, of the piece that Israel is using um, vaccine uh, diplomacy, uh, essentially, I think that is um, great and it explains exactly how thinking along those lines has allowed Israel to um, gain allies steadily under the radar over a very long period of time. Don't give us a hard time about nonsense. And you will find a great ally in us. We will, we will, we will do great things for you. We have the technology, we have the ability, and we have the good common sense to uh, ally with people who don't want to destroy us. Go for it. Israel also, by the way, uh, made a deal uh, controversially, but made a deal with Syria to send Syria doses as a form of ransom for Israelis who are being held in Syrian prisons. Um, and this, this, by the way, is, a, is an important Jewish value. Uh, the ransoming of captives is a, is a central uh, mitzvah in, uh, in, 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 in Jewish law dating back, uh, you know, millennia. Um, and so uh, what happened here was that Bibi Netanyahu had the foresight to buy 10 zillion doses of vaccine um, and so they they have a surplus, and they they're going to use the surplus as they see fit. And why shouldn't Honduras get the goddamn vaccine? Is there something wrong with Honduras getting the vaccine now? I thought everybody was supposed to get the vaccine. It's just nauseating. Yeah. Um, but I am happy to report as we as that uh, just across the transom came the word that the New York Times has issued a report. Official report from its publisher, its chief executive, and its executive editor uh, committing themselves to bring about fundamental changes to the company's workplace culture in an effort to make the newsroom and other Times divisions more diverse and inclusive. The report says, after several months of interviews and analysis, we have arrived at a stark conclusion. The Times is a difficult environment for many of our colleagues from a wide range of backgrounds. Our current culture and systems are not enabling our workforce to thrive and do its best work. This is true across many types of difference, race, gender identity, sexual orientation, ability, socioeconomic background, ideological viewpoints, and more. Ideological viewpoints and more. (laughs) I wonder whose ideological viewpoints those are. Does that mean people like us? Or does that mean people who, you know, like uh, want us to live in Cuba? Um, I think I think Robin DiAngelo's follow up to white fragility should be times fragility, because that is basically an admission that the people they hire are too emotionally fragile to actually grapple with tough ideas with which they disagree. Well, here's here's the thing that might be encouraging in this, because I just I've skimmed this. I haven't read deeply in it. Um, but <clears throat> one of the things that this was designed to address 
uh, according to this report, is, quote, this work should ultimately render the informal practice that some now call a sensitivity read obsolete. And the sensitivity read is essentially giving people who are not editors an editorial veto over content that's published in the Times. Um, and this is perhaps an effort to sideline these informal practices that were established in, during the 2020 moral Okay, but the, but the cynical take on that, the, the uh, crushing morosity take, is to say they're actually bureaucratizing the sensitivity read by only hiring people who will, by definition, read everything with sense, that kind of Good. sensitivity. They can hire whoever they want. And you know what? I've known people who've worked at the Times for 50 years, and it's a horrible place to work. It's mean, it's nasty, it's got a nasty, weird workplace, the uh, hostility, the, the infighting, the ugliness uh, is, a, is a very real thing. It's ebbs and flows depending on who's in charge and, uh, and under what circumstances. But, um, you know, fine. So they have now created the conditions under which they are now admitting that they suck. So good, you suck, and let's see what it's like two years from now after your groveling act of kowtowing here to the mob, let's see how worse you're going to suck. And that's not crushingly morose at all, because let them let them enjoy the fruits of their labors and the fruits of their ideology. Let them, let them have at each other. You know, I'm going to sit back with popcorn. That's all I'm saying. And with that, we'll uh, remember, merch... .commentarymagazine.com for the Crushing Morosity t-shirt and sweatshirt, the Keep the Candle Burning t-shirt, the tote bag, the t-shirt, the commentary logo t-shirt. We'll probably have more products the more that you respond favorably to what we have just put out. So, merch.commentarymagazine.com Thanks a lot for listening. For Abe, Christine, and Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the Candle Burning.